Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Today's discussion will focus on HIV in pregnancy. Joining us today is Dr. Nina Sublett. Dr. Sublett has practiced as a family practice and women's health nurse practitioner for 15 years and currently provides obstetrical care to HIV-positive women in Memphis, Tennessee. She has an appointment as a faculty member in the College of Medicine at the University of Tennessee's Health Science Center in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Memphis as well. She is a board-certified family nurse practitioner and holds certifications as an advanced HIV AIDS certified registered nurse and a sexual assault nurse examiner. Dr. Sublett has a strong interest in antiretroviral adherence, comorbid depression and anxiety, and the impact of sexual assault on mental health. She is also a co-investigator and consultant on several NIH-funded impact research studies focused on prevention of mother-to-child HIV transmission, as well as maternal and neonatal pharmacokinetics of antiretroviral medications. And to not forget, she also has multiple publications in this area and comes with a wealth of knowledge to our show today. Welcome, Dr. Sublett. I know I shared some about your amazing background. Can you give us just a little bit more about your career and what sparked your interest in medicine, specifically in HIV care? Well, my journey is is a long and winding one. I never went to nursing school to work in HIV. I was actually an elementary school teacher. I taught the kindergarten and third grades, and then I became a graduate student, and I was seeking a master's degree in counseling. My goal was to be a like a school counselor. So while I was getting my master's in counseling, I decided to go to nursing school. I went to UT in Memphis, and there they had an accelerated program. Then I became a nurse practitioner, and because I'd always worked with children, I started actually working at St. Jude. And then St. Jude has an infectious disease department, which then has an HIV division. Our journeys always end up where we're supposed to be, and that's very much so a very intriguing and amazing one. Well, I know as a big part of your work, you do research, and we would love to hear about the research you've done in the area of HIV, specifically here in the Tennessee area, West Tennessee, with St. Jude. That just sounds like an amazing journey as well. I feel so lucky that I am surrounded by people who are brilliant. And so I keep hoping that some of that's going to rub off on me and I just stay around them and they teach me things every day. But I'm very lucky to work with some infectious disease physicians 
and some maternal fetal medicine physicians like you, Dr. Tate, that have taught me so much. My very first research experience, and I'm, I should be really proud of this, I was part of the 076 study, which was the very first study that gave an antiretroviral to a pregnant woman. And nobody really wants to do research on pregnant women because they're considered like high risk or nobody wants anything bad involved with their medication. But we were some of the first people in Memphis that enrolled people on that study. And I think that was around the early 1990s. So, and that ended up being a landmark HIV study. That was the very first one that proved that you could prevent or decrease the chance of mother to child transmission of HIV by giving medication. So that was not like my original study. That was a national study that happened and I was a part of that. But some of my personal research was I'm also a sexual assault nurse. And so I see women all the time who have a history of sexual assault or have acutely been sexually assaulted. So when I decided to get my PhD, my dissertation was focusing on the predictors of depression and anxiety among African-American women who were living with HIV. And sexual assault and depression and anxiety just kept coming up over and over and over again. So it kind of just all fell into place that this is where I am now. Well, I can personally say we appreciate the work that you've done, just pushing us all forward and progressing things in the way that you've done and your contribution. We just, no words to say. We appreciate that. And I know the state appreciates the work you've done as well. Well, just diving in a little bit more to talk about HIV care as it relates to pregnancy. I know over the past several years, we've seen tremendous strides just in the care of HIV positive persons. Can you speak to just the advancement we see in medical management and standard practices? Specifically, we'll start to talk about those who are not yet pregnant or planning to get pregnant. When I began working with the HIV positive population, medication regimens were so difficult to take. Now we have, the research has brought us to a point where we can have one pill a day regimens. Once daily, multiple drug regimens have really increased adherence to antiretrovirals. And they're easier to tolerate now. So people do not have as many side effects as they used to when I very first started working in HIV. I think one of the biggest breakthroughs that I've been a part of was the U equals U data. So once people who were living with HIV were on medication and had a viral load that was undetectable or for us was less than 20 copies, it was statistically impossible for them to transmit sexually if they had been adherent to their medication. And that was a game changer in the world of HIV because it really also changed the way that people felt about themselves. My patients feel shame and they feel stigma. And I think that helped to alleviate that. U equals U was an amazing stride to get to making, for lack of a better way to put it, those with HIV feel normal. To not feel like it was as, like you said, so isolating as it had been in the past. 
and just to let them know that they can have normal, healthy lives in all ways, as everyone else does. Pregnancy, I saw, we've all seen follow suit with great strides, progress very quickly over the last few years in the advancements in care. Can you speak to the standards and management, the changes we've seen over the last few years when caring for the HIV pregnant person? Absolutely. Again, I am so very lucky to work in a research-rich environment. So St. Jude is here. The Maternal Fetal Medicine Department at UT has taught me so much. So I realize that I'm in a, in a little bitty place that knows a lot of the recent information. But there, the sad part is, is a lot of people don't know. So there's still a lot of shame and stigma associated with HIV. And a lot of even practicing physicians are not familiar with the newer regimens that are easier to tolerate or the ways that we and just treat women with HIV. So for those providers listening, if they are to come in contact with a pregnant person who has an HIV status or is newly diagnosed with HIV, how do they approach that initial visit with the patient? What pearls can you offer? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I want to tell all providers that people with HIV, I would say 99.5% of my patient population, no, probably just 99 are people who have HIV just because they had sex. So the majority of Americans have sex. The majority of pregnant women have had sex. They are no different than any other pregnant woman in your clinic. Yet they carry this shame and stigma like this modern day Hester Prynne. They feel like everybody knows that they're infected. They feel like that everybody knows that they should be ashamed. So I would say to treat all of your patients with the equal amount of respect. HIV is not a reason to not become pregnant. HIV is not a reason to have the family of your dreams. And they need to learn to incorporate that into their practice. No true words. And I know this will be very relevant because as part of all things that we see, we're We come into touch points with all types of patients across our career. Medical management, you mentioned, has advanced to one pill one time a day. Is there any limitation or any specific approach to choosing proper medications for a patient who is HIV positive and now pregnant? That is an excellent question. So thank you so much for bringing that up, especially for providers who are in an area that do not have access to infectious disease specialists. I would recommend that they visit this website called aidsinfo.com where they can get a lot of information about the latest guidelines to treat pregnant women with HIV. There are not many antiretrovirals that are contraindicated with HIV and pregnancy, but there are some that need increased dosing due to pharmacokinetic reasons during pregnancy. So I would always recommend that you have a consultation with an HIV specialist if you're treating someone with HIV and you're not really used to having that in your practice. And what about the provider who encounters the patient who has hesitancy with continuing or starting medications? There's a lot of misinformation 
about many aspects of pregnancy care. And this can be one where the patient, for all intents and purposes, does not want to harm the baby in taking any medications that may not be safe. How do we approach making sure patients are assured that, one, this is safe, and two, this is the best plan to be on medication while pregnant? I think that is really one of the hardest parts of my job. One of the best parts is that I feel like I have time. I have a lot of newly diagnosed patients, and I get to spend time teaching them about a disease process and treatments. What I do not have time to do is let all of that sink in and allow them to become ready to begin their medication regimen. So we know that antiretrovirals can decrease the chance of mothers transmitting HIV to their children. But antiretrovirals do absolutely no good if you do not put them in your mouth and swallow them. So we have to teach our patients give them the exact same information that we know, that if you take medication during pregnancy, the chance of your baby becoming HIV positive is is greatly reduced. We can get it down to less than 1% now, but the timing for pregnancy is just different. We have a finite timeline and we have to hurry up. It's like a sprint instead of a marathon. We have to hurry up and go through that whole process. And I feel very lucky that I work with a multidisciplinary team that helps us do that, especially with our social workers. You mentioned the marathon. That's more as a sprint, as you describe it. But when initiating medication, when assuring patients are taking their medications appropriately, what's the response time you typically see with patients becoming more controlled. I know the goal is typically undetectable, meaning little to no virus in the bloodstream to causing the trouble for mom or baby. What does that typically look like using these newer medications? When you look at the actual measurement that we're looking at is the serum viral load. How many little pieces of HIV are you seeing? That number can range. It gets huge. So it could be from one to 4 million. I've seen it as high as the millions. But because the range is so huge, it also can change very rapidly. So when we have a very new patient in our practice and they have never had antiretroviral therapy, beginning that process changes so many things so quickly. We can bring them down to an undetectable level within two to three weeks. So it's never too late to begin treatment. It's never too late to start. As long as you start getting that viral load down in pregnancy is the most important thing. And it's my understanding as well in Tennessee and other states that the health department is a great resource for those areas that may be lacking specialists, such as yourself, if you have patients who need connections to medication management or other resources. Is that the case in your experience? It is the case. But again, I live in a place that I have really great colleagues that I can work with. But I know that there are HIV hotlines that you can use and people that you can reach out to if you have a question about beginning antiretroviral medication. Great. So we have a patient that is on medication. She's doing well. Are there certain things that we should highlight 
that should be monitored, you know, outside of the routine pregnancy care that we give during our prenatal days? Are there anything else specific to HIV that you focus on to monitor to make sure patients are staying safe? Absolutely. I would say so many of my patients have not disclosed their HIV status to their family members or their partners, and that makes their adherence a little bit shaky. And that's all related to shame and stigma. So those are something that those are things that we need to address. Disclosure, who all knows, what kind of support person do you have? Because if you're trying to hide and take your medicine, it's just more difficult than doing it on a regular basis. So if you have a patient that has never been on antiretrovirals and you are initiating them, I would recommend a lot of baseline lab results that will help you in the long run. But today, we really need to initiate medication really quickly. Whenever you start medication, I would bring someone back within two weeks just to check their blood work, their hematology, and their chemistries, and bring it back to just the regular stuff. Did you get it? (laughs) Did you pick up your medicine? Were you able to actually fill that prescription? And a lot of times people didn't even start it because they didn't have transportation to the pharmacy. So communication is key. Have you started your medication before you even think about them having any kind of toxicities? Another thing I wanted to discuss is that so many people believe that if you are living with HIV, you automatically have to have a C-section. And that is not true. We really want people to have vaginal deliveries as often as possible. And so that's why you need consultation with an HIV specialist to guide you along the way. I'm glad you bring up that moment on labor and delivery. That's a key moment of planning. And as you mentioned, these discussions, the planning should happen well before it's time to deliver. Can you speak to more of how proper planning should take place and the things that we want to make sure we're doing for the patient when she comes in for delivery? Sure. That that all becomes very basic with communication. So you want to be sure that you have active lines of communication. And that begins with the patient and the people that she are she is welcoming into her birthing suite. Do these people know about her HIV status? Are they aware? And it's not that people walk in hospital rooms and say, I'm here to look at your HIV positive self, but sometimes things do slip up and you have, if you've not disclosed your status and it slips out, it can become very stressful. And this is one of the most beautiful and important parts of people's lives. So I always tell my patients, when you check in and you're with your nurse by yourself, don't let anybody else in there. Tell your family members to wait outside and disclose all of the things that people know and they don't know during that laboring process. Now you mentioned that there is no need for C-section or cesarean delivery just because of status. Are there certain patients or situations where that may be more ideal? Absolutely. It all revolves around how much HIV you have circulating in your system. So it's all about the viral load. What is that number? What is that blood result? In pregnancy, we do check it a little more frequently than we do in our non-pregnant patients. So for our non-pregnant patients that are well-controlled, 
they might have their viral load checked every three months. In pregnancy, again, we have a finite timeline. We don't have time to wait and waste away and see if it's really working. So we will check a viral load two weeks after initiation and then monthly thereafter during pregnancy to make sure that we get the biggest amount of viral control possible. Okay, so it sounds like being able to keep up with the viral load throughout pregnancy and obtaining it just shortly before delivery to guide the that intrapartum or in-hospital planning is best so yeah, that patient... From an HIV perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the viral load from an HIV perspective. There can be other concomitant things that are going on that would require that a patient have a C-section. But from an HIV perspective, it's all about the viral load. And is there an ideal timing to plan to deliver patients with HIV? And again, it all depends about the viral load. Are they on medication? What has that medication done? Do you see a really great result with the viral load being decreased and undetectable? And ACOG, or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, says that they want women to have a viral load less than 1,000 copies to have a safe vaginal delivery. For infectious disease providers, we really want you to be as low as possible. We would love it to be undetectable for you to have a safe vaginal delivery. So there is that gray area between undetectable and 1,000 copies that Again, communication is going to be so important with your obstetrical providers. I've noticed, too, that we've seen progression in how we manage on labor and delivery. We can now break water for a patient who is undetectable and taking her medications. There's opportunity to even potentially help with assisted delivery. There are a lot of things we can do to normalize that process so they don't feel so isolated. Is that the same when it comes to medication management while on labor and delivery? Are there any special exclusions or anything, or is it pretty much continuation of routine care? Well, again, it all goes back to the viral load. If they have been undetectable throughout their pregnancy, it's their routine care. If it's time for them to take their medication and they're in labor, It's best if they are able to take that medication, even with a small glass of water. If their viral load is increased or they admit to having some missed doses recently, then we do need to change things a little bit. We have some IV medication that we can offer pregnant women to help reduce the chance that their baby would become infected. And the guidelines say that you would use that medication if the viral load was over a thousand copies or they had been a new diagnosis or had not had their medication. So there's still a little bit of a gray area there. But if you've been undetectable, you do not need IV medication, which used to be the standard of care. So that's also been a huge change that we've had to adapt to. A huge change, and I can imagine that helps a lot with the disclosure issues that may be present if there's not signs around the room that something is going on or that the patient is positive. Right, exactly. Because when I very first started working in HIV, we didn't have the internet. Now all people have to do is take a picture of a bag of medicine and Google it, and they know exactly what it's for. 
So there's just uh, so many things have changed so rapidly that this has really helped the whole process. And what should new uh, mothers expect as far as the care of their infant right after being born? I know that it's typically standard just to protect the baby a little bit longer from the virus, but what does that standard look like? The standard of care for infants that are born to women who are living with HIV, if they have, if they're on medication and they have a controlled viral load, the baby will still receive four to six weeks of oral HIV medication as part of the prophylaxis to prevent HIV transmission. If this is a mother who has a higher viral load or who has not had medicine, that infant will require more medication as part of the prophylaxis, which could be three separate ones. So it, it can become much more complicated very quickly. And again, that's why you need the input of infectious disease specialists. And I can imagine as well, that's a conversation you want to have way before mom and baby are going home together. In the case as well, that again, that's another happy moment. Baby's coming home that there needs to be just discrete administration of medication by mom. So I'm glad we're able to talk about this and make plans before as a team, as our teams listen to what we're talking about today. Now, early in the year, the Department of Health and Human Services released updated guidelines regarding breastfeeding in HIV-positive patients. And I'll tell you, this conversation comes up with patients that I see quite often because breastfeeding is definitely what we're all saying is the best way to feed babies from the mother's perspective. Their recommendation is that for individuals on medication with undetectable viral load and an HIV positive status, if they choose to breastfeed, we should be supporting this decision. Can you speak to breastfeeding as it relates to HIV positive excuse me, HIV positive individuals and how this new recommendation may change what we see as the standard? Absolutely. This was something that we kind of felt was coming down the pike after the U equals U data came out. Can you transfer that same knowledge from sexual transmission to perinatal transmission to breastfeeding transmission? If you're on medication and you have an undetectable viral load, is it safe for you to have a vaginal delivery with no medication? And then is it safe for you to breastfeed? I think in the United States, we've been hesitant to adopt breastfeeding as a viable option just because we're the United States of America and we have clean water and we have access to formula. And so we would try to eliminate that risk of infection for a newborn by telling mothers, we recommend that you do not breastfeed, period. And then it was over. But the reality is, what patients do varies. Some people really want to breastfeed. There are many benefits to breastfeeding. So communication is so important to discuss this with your patient during the pregnancy so that you can teach them to breastfeed more safely after the baby is born. So yes, it has, there's been a huge pendulum swing and that it is a conversation that we get to have openly and the 
idea of shared decision-making is something that is really encouraged, which it really should have been all along. Very true. I can see another leap of progression here as this becomes more standard. And I can't stress with you enough communication and information, right? Empowering our patients so we can make that great shared decision-making moment for them. Absolutely. Well, you've mentioned that you have this great multidisciplinary team that you work with. For providers listening in who may say, you know, I do have HIV-positive patients in my population that I care for. How do I go about what should I be looking for? Who should I connect to to build a team that's best for care of this patient population? Oh, that's such a great question. And again, I'm so lucky that I'm right here in the middle of Memphis with St. Jude. But if you are living in a section of the United States that does not have access to a pediatric research institution, I would reach out to see who would be following these infants after they were born to do their HIV testing and to establish some type of ongoing communication so that there is a plan of how to effectively treat the babies as soon as they're born. That's great to think about connecting. And I know a lot of times between the OB and the pediatrics world, we don't get many opportunities to connect for continuum of care. I'd imagine as well, just mentioning everything with disclosure and mental health that a social worker may be key if available or a case manager as well. And then a pharmacist, right? The medication is such key, a key part of care for the patients. Just imagine if there's any troubleshooting with that, that a pharmacist may be a great connection for the team as well. Absolutely. And with pregnancy comes a whole lot of other problems like nausea, vomiting, heartburn, constipation. And we are so lucky that we have a dedicated nutritionist that can help our patients from that perspective. And again, a pharmacist is also a very welcome member to the team. We also should include people on the delivery side. So labor and delivery nurses, pediatricians that are going to be caring for the infants, and lactation consultants might not be aware of these changes that have happened with the breastfeeding guidelines. Communication and education is going to be so important with the change. And I would just like to highlight, I would just like to highlight how well your team communicates between all of the touch points a patient has from the office to the hospital to the pediatrician's office, back to their primary care or their specialist. That circle of care is so important because that patient's going to need support in all of those moments. Right. And pregnancy should be one of those things that people should embrace. So I always tell my patients, if especially the new diagnoses, they are so scared and they are so worried. And I always tell them to please try to enjoy your pregnancy. Give that burden to me. Let me decide which medications are going to be great for you. And we're going to get that virolo down really soon. But you do need to have ongoing communications. If you have a multidisciplinary team, it would be fantastic just so that you could plan for what was going to happen. So true. Well, in our final moments, I just want to spend just a minute talking about 
those patients who may be planning for pregnancy. They may be listening in, uh, those persons living with HIV and wondering, well, what should be my plan if I am positive, but my partner isn't? Or I have a partner who is positive or we're both positive. How do we get ready for this pregnancy journey and keep everyone safe, but have a successful start to pregnancy? Such a great question. We have come so far with perinatal HIV research that HIV should not be a contraindication of pregnancy. Because you have HIV should not discourage you from having a family. I would recommend that you see a healthcare provider before becoming pregnant, really for all pregnant women, so they can start on their prenatal vitamin regimen and just be prepared. For women who are living with HIV, again, it's all about the viral load. We want that viral load to be as low as possible. So if they are planning a pregnancy, it would be ideal if they were on a successful antiretroviral regimen that kept them virologically suppressed. If they were women who were not living with HIV, but their partner did have HIV, and for this example, we would say this partner missed their medications and had a high level of viral load, we would recommend PrEP for this patient to prevent HIV transmission sexually during the pregnancy or before the pregnancy. Well, Dr. Sublet, I am so, again, grateful we all are that you joined us today to share in your share with us your expertise. We don't want to take up all of your time because we can keep you talking for many, many more hours. And we may just have to bring you back to join <laughs> in with us again to share no, more. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much again. Information regarding HIV and pregnancy and other resources will be included in today's show notes, specifically those that Dr. Sublet has mentioned during our talk. Thank you all for joining us today. TIPQC will continue to feature podcasts from our state experts addressing key elements for the pregnant population. Join us next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.